Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you have myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me, as is her wont, is Phoebe Watson. Hello! Glad to be back. For this episode, we are about to talk about not one, but two books that we have been utterly obsessed with for the past month. And there has been so much talk and discussion that has gone into this episode of the podcast. And our biggest problem is that I wish I could teach a university length course on this, not just a one hour podcast. But the two books that we want to talk about are books by quite famous authors, but not very famous books. The first is um, Absent in the Spring, which is by Agatha Christie, but she actually originally wrote it under a pen name, Mary Westmacott. And the other is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. And yeah, we've been totally obsessed with these books for the last couple of weeks. Isn't that right? Uh, Months. Months. (laughs) Gosh, yeah, the time does fly. But yeah, we read... Till We Have Faces quite recently for our C.S. Lewis book club that we're involved with, which is run by Father Connor, who was on this podcast not too long ago. And it was a fantastic discussion and just like a real revelation. It had been a title that I've been meaning to get to for a while. And And that I've been pushing you to read. (laughs) You've been nudging me, nudging me. And it was definitely one that you kind of it does really take you by surprise and then the other one absent in the spring that was recommended by our friend julie who reached out to me to say i've read this book i think you'll really like it and i read it in october Mm -hmm. and it was like i said i think i recommended it on the podcast last time around and i said like it's one of the few books that I like raced through. I raced through this book. And you then, really did. And then I gave it to Phoebe and she raced through it. And we're up to like six people now within the space of a couple of weeks who we've said, you have to read this. And they've immediately gone and read it within like a day. <laughs> it is a fairly short read. <laughs> it is a short read, but it's also one that you can't put down. And what was interesting about reading them, it just so happened kind of at the same time, is that they are very, very different books, but they actually have very similar themes and they they kind of centre on the idea of like knowing yourself and, and a sort of self-revelation. Yeah, and I think it's also really telling that both books are kind of the favourites of their authors, that C.S. Lewis considered it his most mature work, the one that he was most proud of. It's one of the few times that Tolkien agreed with him. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's the last novel he ever wrote. He wrote other books afterwards, but it's the last novel he ever wrote, and he wrote it in conjunction with his his wife. So it is sort of the climax of his fictional writing in in some ways. And then... And it's very C.S. Lewis in that it's retelling a myth and he was obsessed with myths (laughs) i think he was trying to retell that myth for like almost his whole life except that he really wanted to do it through poetry and if you know seasley was at all you know he's an amazing storyteller and not a particularly strong poet so when he finally relinquished the idea of writing it in poetry and wrote it in prose it kind of finally clicked For Agatha Christie, she said that this book was the one book that has satisfied me completely. And she says she wrote it in three days flat. So not only do you read it quickly, but apparently you write it quickly. (laughs) Uh, But we are very conscious in discussing these books in that we don't really expect listeners to be familiar with them. 
Or to have read them. Or to have even heard of them. <laughs> Except for when they were listening to us on the last podcast. Yeah, yeah, you should have definitely checked them out by now, surely, if you listened to the previous podcast. <laughs> You've had two weeks, what are you doing? We gave you warning. <laughs> but because of that, and also the, the books have, they're not like thriller plot twists, but you are in suspense to find out what happens. And so we want to be quite careful about the way we talk about them. Obviously, that's quite tricky because we do want to go into detail, but we also don't want to bereave you of the chance to kind of experience them firsthand in the way that they navigate the two main characters' souls. That's one of the reasons why we're talking about the two of them together. Yeah, that's a great point. That we thought if we did them while they're both kind of big enough topics you could do on their own, if we talk about them together, it leaves a kind of space of not saying exactly what happens in which one. But also because of that, we want to... Normally we do a kind of quick recap of the books, um, but to be honest, that's usually off the cuff, and then we sort of, like, make it up as we go along. But we do want to be really careful this time. So we have actually, like, written out blurbs for the, the books that we're going to quickly read. You're giving me credit for something I didn't do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll let you read them. I wrote them. But it, just because we want to make sure that the stories are easy for you to follow when we're when you're listening, just because... I don't know, news stories are always kind of hard to follow, but also to make sure that we don't say anything that we would regret saying. So to give an introduction, I'm going to start with Absent in the Spring and just read out um, the blurb I have here. Prim and proper Joan Scudamore is travelling back to England from a trip to Baghdad, where she visited her daughter, who was sick. On the first evening of her travels, she runs into an old school friend, Blanche Haggard, and they reminisce about their lives. Joan thinks Blanche has made quite a mess of her life, but Blanche claims she's had fun. Joan is quietly proud of the, quote, successful life she's had in her marriage to Rodney and in raising her three children. But the event sets her thinking about her life. As she continues her journey home, she soon finds herself stranded at an isolated rest house by flooding on the railway tracks. With nothing but flat desert all around her and no one to talk to, this sudden solitude compels Joan to assess her life for the first time ever and to face up to many of the truths about herself. Looking back over the years, Joan painfully re-examines her attitudes, relationships and actions and becomes increasingly uneasy about the person who is revealed to her. Absent in the Spring is way more, like, theological than you would normally expect from an Agatha Christie. Phoebe, you made the really good point that it, it does feel more like it fits in the category of C.S. Lewis's theological fiction. But I've also kind of described it, it is still an Agatha Christie novel in that it's like piecing together the clues of a crime, but the crime is like the desolation of your own soul. <laughs> and I think... It also, it feels like an Agatha Christie novel for all that it is a very different style to our usual mm -hmm. in that Joan is the kind of character you might expect to have been murdered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And it, it, it has all of Agatha Christie's like psychological astuteness. And then for the C.S. Lewis novel, Till We Have Faces, it's a slightly complex premise. So I thought it would be helpful to both just recap the myth that he's basing this on. Uh, like we said, it was it was a myth that sort of obsessed him and he wanted to retell it in a very specific way. So I'll recap the myth and then Phoebe will take over and do a sort of blurb on the actual novel itself. So 
In the myth of Cupid and Psyche, Psyche is a princess so beautiful that the goddess Venus becomes jealous. In revenge, she instructs her son Cupid to make her fall in love with a hideous monster, but instead he falls in love with her himself. He becomes her unseen husband, visiting her only at night. At the behest of her sisters, Psyche disobeys his orders not to attempt to look at him, and in doing so, she loses him. In her search for him, she undertakes a series of cruel and difficult tasks set by Venus in the hope of winning him back. Cupid can eventually no longer bear to witness her suffering or be apart from her, and he pleads their case to the gods. Psyche becomes immortal, and the lovers are married in heaven. And then, until we have faces, it takes a story and places it in a different pagan society, Gloam. Told from the perspective of Psyche's sister Orwell, the book takes the form of Orwell's chronicling of her life, and specifically her ill-treatment from the gods, as a kind of complaint about them. Ugly since childhood, Orwell's young years are filled with her cruel nurse, abusive father, and the favouritism towards her more beautiful sister Redivelle. She first finds joy when her father takes a Greek slave called the Fox, who becomes her mentor in everything, especially philosophy. Her father marries again, but his new wife dies in childbirth. The child is the beautiful Psyche, whom Aurel loves deeply. Even the villagers begin to worship her for her beauty and her virtue. But when a plague comes to the country, they demand that she is sacrificed to their mother goddess Ungat, which involves leaving Psyche on the mountain for Ungat's son, the Shadow Brute. Thinking Psyche dead, Orwell goes up the mountain to bury the bones, but instead finds Psyche happily in love with her god-husband. Psyche insists that she is in a beautiful palace, and her husband comes to her at night. Orwell, however, cannot see anything but the barren mountain landscape. Only when she wakes in the middle of the night does she for a moment think she sees the palace, but she dismisses it as a nighttime vision. She forces Psyche's hand, demanding her to try and see her husband by tricking him. When the trick is discovered, Aurel encounters the god, who mysteriously tells her, you also shall be Psyche. Psyche is banished, and Aurel is haunted by the sound of her cries in the wilderness. Aurel returns to her kingdom and decides to veil her face for life, because of her ugliness. She eventually becomes queen. With the fox and her loyal servants, she relentlessly works to improve her kingdom and its standing. At the end of her life, embittered against the gods, she demands an answer from them. In the final section of the book, we experience the answer. So those are the two blurbs. Hopefully they're kind of easy enough to follow because we want to dive into the, the themes. As you can see, they're quite different novels. Like, they, you wouldn't necessarily think they have this twinship, but... One has a character from, like, civilised England and the other is, you know pagan pre-christians <laughs> yeah i just think that they have such interesting parallels and they are so much about self-reflection which i think so much of our modern life is like about avoiding self-reflection or about avoiding assessing how we experience the world uh, to be honest one of the obvious ways that we do that a lot ourselves is through busyness and that is so totally a theme in, in absent in the spring yeah, so joan has like been totally taken up in her world of civilised busyness that 
she describes herself as never having anything but 15 minutes to herself before dinner. I know. She's so infuriating. And the worst part is that she's that era of, like, lady of the house where... And, like, her, her daughter actually accuses her of this at one point. She's like, what do you do? And she's like, I manage the household. And you're like, you don't clean, you don't cook, you don't put us to bed, you don't get us dressed, you don't... And it's like... <laughs> yeah, she manages the servants. Yeah. Which is her full-time job that only leaves her 15 minutes on any given day to think about her life. Don't forget all the societies that she's joined to make herself feel important. Yes, exactly. And so actually, in the first scene that she has with Blanche Haggard, her old school friend, they talk about the possibility of getting stranded while you're travelling. And Blanche is like, terrified of this idea. She was like, oh, I don't think I'd like that at all. I don't think I'd like to consider my sins. Yes, so Joan says, But all the same, it'd be wonderful to feel that one had a whole day or even two days with nothing to do but think. I wonder, said Blanche, what you'd think about. Joan laughed. It was a pleasant, tinkling little sound. There are always plenty of things to think about, aren't there? she said. Blanche grinned. One can always think of one's sins. Yes, indeed, Jonas assented politely, though without amusement. Blanche eyed her keenly. Only that wouldn't give you occupation for long. She frowned and went on abruptly. You'd have to go on from there to think of your good deeds and all the blessings of your life. Hmm, I don't know. Might be rather dull. I wonder, she paused, if you'd nothing to think about but yourself for days and days. Wonder what you'd find out about yourself. Joan looked sceptical and faintly amused. Would one find out anything one didn't know before? Blanche said slowly, I think one might. She had a sudden shiver. I shouldn't like to try it. Yeah, that's definitely the theme of Joan. She's so, like, confident in herself and, like, smug in her position. And she's talking to this friend who has led a very hedonistic lifestyle in many ways. And she's had, I think, like, three or four husbands. And uh, And she's travelling out to visit the fourth or fifth. (laughs) Yeah. But there's something honest about Blanche. Like, she doesn't pretend that she has her life together. She's afraid of assessing her sins. Like, she has a sort of, like earnestness to her that Joan is just so far from and so obviously as you would expect the novel immediately brings us to Joan being stuck in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do but to think of herself and she exactly what she's just asked for yeah and she begins to have these horrible thoughts about herself there's this great recurring image that she keeps using where she talks about lizards popping their head out it's like that she's been repressing all of these thoughts for so long the first time it happens she says and suddenly discordantly a thought slipped and flashed sideways across the panorama of joan's mind much as she had noticed a snake flash and slip across a dust-coloured track in front of the car only yesterday a mere streak of writhing green done almost before you saw it. The streak consisted of three words leaping out of space back into oblivion. The Randolph girl. (laughs) It's like she just has these moments where like a word or a phrase or a thought crosses her mind and it it disrupts this whole vista that she's built up for herself. Yeah, she'll be like going along thinking about something like she'll go, I must choose a happy train of thought now. Mm -hmm. Um, And then because she's buried the truth about other people Mm -hmm. so deeply whoever she thinks about those things then start coming up yeah and she really is so horrified at the idea that she might be struggling with this like it feels very much like 
She's scared that she's going mad. She thinks, I'm not this kind of person. I, I don't have these kind of thoughts. I don't have nerves, you know? And she starts trying to make excuses for herself. Does she have a fever? Is she agoraphobic? She just says, well, you know, maybe just self-reflection. Like, I'm kind of above self-reflection. Because she says... <laughs> what a thing to say. I know. She says, the truth was, she reflected, that she had always led such a full, occupied life. So much interest in it. It was a civilised life. And if you had all that balance and proportion in your life, it certainly left you rather at a loss when you were faced with the barren uselessness of doing nothing at all. The more useful and cultured a woman you were, the more difficult it made it. That's so Joan, that smugness. And that that thinking that she's being useful when she's meddling. Mm -hmm. That sort of busyness that she has cultivated for herself for her own means. Yeah, it's really her identity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting to talk about her busyness in comparison to Oral's busyness. Mm -hmm. From Tilia Faces, yeah. yeah. So Oral is the Queen of Gloam, as we find out at the start of the novel, so not spoiling anything there. And when she eventually becomes Queen, she really immerses herself in the duties of being Queen. And using the phrase, I think, of she'll be Queen as long as the gods will let her. Yeah. And it is very much a vocation for her. Yeah. But at the same time, she's got this horrible, haunting memory of Psyche and Psyche's cry of desolation in the wilderness mm -hmm. that she's burying inside of her and piling up work for herself to do to avoid that loneliness. Mm. I think it's, a very di it's very different to Joan's smugness because she knows she's avoiding it. She knows she's haunted by it. But there is still that sense of using the work to hide from the truth. Definitely, yeah. And it kind of ends up being a mask for the craving for love that she has. That she's like, as long as she can be useful or, or productive, that she's able to keep people around her. Yeah, the, what is really interesting, I think, in that is unlike Joan, she does do good. Yeah. That she does actually make her kingdom a better place by being a good queen. She isn't a tyrannical leader. Now, it is set in pagan times, and so some of the standards we would be kind of horrified by it. And I think we're supposed to be horrified by her. Like, she is, to a certain extent, vindictive, and she is happy to have people killed on her command. But at the same time, like, especially the story brings you through her father's ruling, and like, he is both, you know, cruel and also not even effective. <laughs> You know, that like at least she has a clear idea of how to improve the lives of her subjects. And she does very much do that in what we would see as a Christian way. Mm -hmm. It's not like she's making changes that make the kingdom better, but we would disagree with. But at the same time, like you were saying, she does use that as a mask for her like for her craving to be loved absolutely there's one case in particular there's one of her the people that she relies on has passed away and she's talking to the wife of this person and again it's that moment of revelation where you finally actually see something from somebody else's point of view yeah it's cutting and basically what's happened is she's been working this person so hard that out of her craving to be loved and to have that person there all the time, mm -hmm. that she's driven him to the grave, that he's died because he hasn't taken the time out to keep his strength up. Yeah. And 
she asks his wife why why she didn't tell Orwell about this. The wife replies in disgust of tell you and so take away from him his work which was his life, make a child and a daughter of him, keep him to myself at that cost, make him so mine that he was no longer his. And yet, Orwell replies, he would have been yours, but I would be his. He was my husband, not my house dog. He was to live the life he thought best and fittest for a great man, not that which would most pleasure me. Yeah, it's really, really interesting that. And uh, Orwell goes on to reflect, for it was all true, truer than Ansett could know. I had rejoiced when there was a press of work, had heaped up needless work to keep him late at the palace, plied him with questions for the mere pleasure of hearing his voice, anything to put off the moment when he would go and leave me to my emptiness, and I had hated him for going, punished him too. And, you know, she does make the point that the wife probably also inflicted her own kind of punishment on him for staying so late. She describes him as saying that many a night her jealousy of me had welcomed him home late from the palace to a bitter hearth. Like Ooh, this it's poor, so cutting. This poor man like caught between these two people that are trying to have a tug of war over his life. But where the where his wife gets it more right is that she knows he's not just living for her that she has to have the ability to let him go and be his own person. Whereas Orwell, and it's a theme, it's this theme that runs throughout the whole novel, and it's the idea of love as a, a devouring force, something that consumes and like spits out the remains of what it loves. Absolutely. Yeah, you can really see how the wife's jealousy is over that extra time that Orwell is taking, mm -hmm. rather than the work itself. Yeah that if it was him going off to battle, she wouldn't be sitting there jealous. Yeah. But it's those extra hours at the palace that she knows are above and beyond what should be expected of her husband. Yeah. It's that that she craves. And it's really interesting to hear what C.S. Lewis himself says on this topic, because after Till We Have Faces, he went and wrote a book called The Four Loves, which is a like, theological treatise on the different types of love. Mm. And when he's talking about family love, he talks about, and love in general, he says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must love no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. I think that's a really chilling description of how love can go bad. Mm. And, and then he also talks about how all of these loves can't be made into gods themselves. He says that affection produces happiness if, and only if, there is goodness, patience, self-denial, humility, and the continual intervention of a far higher sort of love. If we try to live by affection alone, affection will go bad on us. And I think you can really see that in both of these novels, that particularly Aurel has put the affection and love that she's craving here C.S. Lewis is using affection for storge, which is the Greek family love. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, and we'll, we'll get back to Joan in a little bit because she really brings up a parallel to this, but I think what's interesting about both these novels is that they both feature people who outwardly look quite justified. And I think it's just this really interesting exploration about how how close we can get to having virtue while actually being incredibly destructive or how something way off in our direction towards God looks so much like something very natural and something even good. There's a Flannery O'Connor quote, and I'll be quoting Flannery quite a lot, but she talks about how she reckons that gambling is almost a virtue because it sort of, it, it, it abandons the sort of almighty power of the dollar. <laughs> and she, But she says afterwards that she thinks that heaven will be the opportunity where we get to see how close all of our vices were to being virtues. That like this thing that I think we would say, well, at least she loved him. Like she she was giving love in a way. And after that section in the novel, she actually says, my love for him had become to me a sickening thing. I had dragged it up and out onto such heights and precipices of truth that it came into an air where it could not live. It stank annoying greed for one to whom I could give nothing, of whom I craved all. I think that's really key, particularly for Till We Have Faces, mm -hmm. is that devouring love, that need to be loved. Yeah. And I'm going to go back to The Four Loves for a second mm -hmm. with another quote that plays on that. It says that the love prove that they are unworthy to take the place of God by the fact that they cannot even remain themselves and do what they promise to do without God's help. Even for their own sakes, the loves must be submitted to God if they are to remain the things that they want to be. In this yoke lies their true freedom. Yeah. And I think that's what we see in both of these novels, that it is a love that has gone unyoked by the higher love and by the recognition of a higher good. Yeah, definitely. Because like we said, outwardly Joan's life in Absent in the Spring looks like a normal life like it just looks very traditional she she keeps calling herself like it's it's good to feel like one has been successful <sighs> that feeling of everything has gone outwardly according to plan and so it all looks well and like neatly wrapped up and she conflates that with love yeah. like that that's the that's the thing and she is so focused on this that like all of her love that she gives to people is about constructing this success regardless of whether that's what the people want themselves and the most kind of heartbreaking of this i think is her relationship with her husband who she does love but in the most cruel kind of way she very often goes but i loved rodney so yeah and and yet she has never allowed him to live the life that he wants to live and that he had kind of every right to pursue. She's never made the sacrifice which the servant's wife made. Yeah. She's never recognised his right. Mm -hmm. That he doesn't live for her yeah. pleasure. So most importantly, he is part of like a family law firm and he studied law and he's supposed to go into law and he's offered this great job at the firm and he's already been working at the firm for five years and it's all it's all building to this this one thing just at, at the final moment he sort of takes a hold of her hand and, and it says there was a curious pleading look in his dark eyes he said i hate office life i hate it and then he said very quickly and eagerly the words pouring out in a rush I want to farm. And she replies, you can't just do what you want to do. 
that's so cutting that she really pulls out that duty mm-hmm. that he has, but then masks what she's doing. That he asks her, "How do you know that I shall be happy?" And she answers briskly and gaily, "I'm quite sure you will. You'll see." Yeah. And then much later, she's like smugly congratulating herself that she's guided him away from that decision. Yeah. That she very much pats herself on the back for this, Mm -hmm. rather than acknowledging the sacrifice he makes in going into the firm and earning money for their family. Because, like, you see bits and pieces through the novel of, like, farming going downhill, that there is a justifiable reason for him not to go into farming. It wouldn't necessarily be the most stable income yeah but there is like but there is also the chance of it being a stable like a happy life that mm-hmm. they could make ends meet yeah it's not a complete pipe dream either no i think there's a real balance i think he yeah rodney is definitely not just thinking of himself when he says farming mm-hmm. like he is thinking of that being a really positive place to bring up a family and the types of lessons that he would want them to learn and the types of lives that he would want them to live now mm-hmm. like phoebe was saying there is a world in which it still maybe wasn't the correct thing to go into farming. Like there, there are many of us who have all taken jobs for the sake of needing to provide food on the table for people or, you know, make sacrifices on like the careers that they want in favor of the, the like security of their family. But it's, it's not the decision. It's the attitude to the decision. Yeah. And the lack of recognition of the sacrifice of the other. Mm hmm. That is very chilling, yeah. Yeah, and... And I think also that's where Rodney has seen this type of life that he wants. And the problem is that Joan doesn't want that life. Yeah. And she masks the fact that she doesn't want that life in the, like, duty to provide for the children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she presents it as her virtue. And she says that all the time. You don't know what I've sacrificed. And it's like, well, we don't because we've never seen you sacrifice anything, you know? And what she then does is completely ignore any fact or detail or instance that disrupts her idea that maybe things haven't been as successful as she would like. She just convinces herself that... She's done the right thing. She's correct. And so she just constructs this fantasy life around herself where she's like, she refuses to see the reality of the people that she supposedly loves. And how she's making them miserable. Yeah, there's this really poignant moment when she begins out on this travel to Baghdad to see her daughter and her husband Rodney is seeing her off at the station um as the train is leaving she takes one last glance outside and the book says he was already striding up the platform she felt a sudden thrill at seeing that well-known back how young he looked suddenly his head thrown back his shoulders squared it gave her quite a shock She had an impression of a young, carefree man striking up the platform. Suddenly, in the desert, with the sun pouring down on her, Joan gave a quick, uncontrollable shiver. She thought, no, no, I don't want to go on. I don't want to think about this. Rodney, striding up the platform, his head thrown back, the tired sag of his shoulders all gone. A man who had been relieved of an intolerable burden. Ooh. Oh, that book is so cutting. So it's very good. It's, it's just like, it's so transfixing to read it because it's just these like moments where she's piecing together the reality of her life that she's denied to herself for so long. Yeah, and there's this like 
really interesting moment where she's thinking back to her school days and the head teacher gives them each like this talk before they go out into the world mm. and what she says to Joan is really, really cutting. It's an example of a good teacher seeing to the core of a character. Yeah. Just no lazy thinking, Joan, my dear. Don't just accept things at their face value because it's the easiest way and because it may save you pain. Life is meant to be lived and not glossed over. And don't be too pleased with yourself. Because just between us, that is a little your failing, isn't it, Joan? Think of others, my dear, and not too much of yourself, and be prepared to accept responsibility. Mm. But she's so deluded; she she thinks she's not thinking of herself. Mm-hmm. She, that that's the the bit that's so hard to get through to her is that in her mind everything is for her children and for her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, it's in the Four Loves. C.S. Lewis has an example which is almost identical to this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm thinking of Mrs. Fidget who died a few months ago. It's really astonishing how her family have brightened up. The drawn look has gone from her husband's face. He begins to be able to laugh. Even the dog, who was never allowed out except on a lead, is now a well-known member of the lamppost club on their road. Mrs Fidget very often said that she lived for her family. Everyone in the neighbourhood knew it. The vicar says Mrs Fidget is now at rest. Let us hope she is. What is quite certain is that her family are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and Joan's really just become this busybody meddling in her children's lives. And you really see how they fled from her as as a result. Yeah, I mean, she, she again, she's upset that her son Tony has, like, moved to a different country and is living this life not under her eye. And she keeps saying to Rodney, you should have forced him to go into law. You should have forced him to join the family firm. And you're like... And Rodney really, like, goes... But there was a risk that he wouldn't have been happy. And, <laughs> and she's just like, oh, happiness isn't everything. <laughs> and like, I think that's interesting because it's such a, a slogan in the modern world, like do what makes you happy. And it, this feels like it, it's falling into that kind of trap, but that's not what it's saying. It's actually saying, don't focus on this outward appearance of happiness as, at the and, cost of the actual true joy inside. Yeah, and success. Yeah. That what she wants is for her son to be close by, under her control, and worldly successful. Yeah. That she can show him off. Yeah, she has like she wants to be able to parade him around. And so this this theme of happiness is the the true happiness that we read in the gospels. It's not just about fulfilling your own like fl- fleeting desires, but like this deliberate subversion of the people you love's hopes for their lives in order that they fall in with yours. Absolutely. It just is so so difficult because it also feels so much like any one of us could fall into these traps. Definitely. And I think what else is really dangerous about it is that we see how they, both Aurel and Joan, control others as a pretense that it's for their own good. Yeah. And I think that's really chilling when it comes to Aurel and Psyche. Mm-hmm. Aurel is trying to convince Psyche to betray her husband, essentially, because she thinks that her husband isn't real, that he's a brute, and therefore her image of Psyche's husband is completely different to Psyche's image of her husband. Mm-hmm. And Aurel cannot accept that Psyche might be right. Mm-hmm. 
my terrible temptation came back to me to leave her in that full happy dream, whatever came of it, to spare her, not to bring her down from it to misery. Anything might be true. But with the other part of me, I answered that I was indeed her mother and her father too, all she had of either, that my love must be grave and provident, not slipshod and indulgent. After all, what was she but a child? Children must obey. I hardened my resolution. Yeah, and I think that idea, children must obey, is very much in both of them. Yeah, and she they both very much refuse to see their children, and for Joan, her husband, as grown-up people capable of making their own conscientious decisions. Mm-hmm. And especially in the case where they don't fit in with your wishes and desires. Definitely. Yeah, no, Orwell has this really kind of destructive need for psyche to only fall in line with whatever Orwell wants. Yeah, it's really heart-wrenching. Yeah. And within that, they both have very different worldviews. Yeah, um, like, it's funny how they produce quite different results. Yeah. Like, I think Joan's world is totally fantasy. It's totally surface level. She's just brushed over everything and everything's fine and everything is just, you know, your standard... It's a smooth lick of glossy paint put on a ruin of a house. Yeah. Whereas Orwell, she's a really complex character, which is one of the things I love about yeah. it. I mean, C.S. Lewis gets a bad rep for his handling of female characters. So if you ever want that dispelled, read Till We Have Faces. She is such a complex character. Really, really interesting. But she kind of, it, she has this sort of desperate pragmatism where she almost refuses to adhere to a belief. She just wants a result. So... When she encounters Psyche, like we were saying, she doesn't really believe Psyche actually has a god husband because she can't see it. That was actually a point I wanted to to make. The, The big crux moment of difference between the original Cupid and Psyche myth and C.S. Lewis's novel is this idea that when the sisters see Psyche in her new heavenly home, in the original myth, they can see it all. It's all there. There's no reason to doubt that she has a godly husband because she's in a godly palace. And it's only jealousy, acknowledged jealousy, that drives them to push her to to betray her husband. Yeah, like you couldn't possibly have a beautiful palace and a beautiful husband, you know? (laughs) Um, But in C.S. Lewis's story, he had this, when he went to write it, he had this idea that this was the thing that would make the most difference, which is that Orwell would not be able to see the palace. And so she has to take Psyche's word that there is anything, you know? Psyche's word and the fact that Psyche is alive, free and healthy. Yeah, she has some signs, but not a lot. And we'll we'll get to the signs in in a moment. But so when when she comes back from seeing Psyche, she consults with her guardsmen, she consults with the fox, her mentor, and they both have completely different ideas. The guardsman thinks it is a god and that you shouldn't meddle. And the fox thinks, oh, it's probably some horrible man who lives up in the mountains who's just, like, taken hold of Psyche, you know? Yeah. Um, And Orwell just refuses to come down on either side and says, well, whatever the answer is, I want the result of Psyche leaving and coming with me. She takes the worst of both of those Mm -hmm. and not the result, which are both of them telling her not to meddle or at least not to force Psyche into anything. Yeah. And instead, yeah, it goes with the, this is what I want. Yeah. And this is part of her whole pattern of accruing all of these wrongs that have happened to her in the ways that she has not 
gotten the result that she wanted through life. That, you know, she blames the gods for the way that she has experienced the sufferings of, of her life. It's like that she's accusing them of not being able, like, you set me a set of riddles, you set me a game, and I wasn't able to guess right, and that's your fault because you made it too difficult, you know? Yeah, and yet she has all those moments of grace. It's not the easiest thing in the world. Like I said, she can't see the palace straight off. Mm -hmm. But she does have that moment where she does see the palace. Yes. And then she never mentions it to anyone. Yeah, that's what I was going to come back to. After she sees Psyche and after she's all confused about what should, should happen, she's not able to stay exactly where Psyche is overnight. And so she's sleeping on the other side of the river and she gets up in the middle of the night to take a drink and lo and behold, she sees the palace as she's taking that gulp of drink. And then, as you might expect in this kind of story, the palace disappears in another second. And she just keeps insisting that this is just like another thing to confuse me. This is another obstacle. Like if you'd really wanted me to know, the palace would have just been there the whole time. Like why should I guess? If Psyche can speak clearly, why can't the gods speak clearly? Did they not learn? You know? And she just sees this as only another obstacle in her guessing correctly. Yeah, and she's really determined to think the worst of the world. Mm -hmm. It's like she's let her ugliness like her outward ugliness, mm -hmm. seep into her soul and close her off from joy. Yeah. And there's a really chilling moment in that when she's going back up the mountain and she says, now flung at me like frolic or insolence, there came as if there was it were a voice. Why should your heart not dance? It's the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered. Why not? I had to tell myself over, like a lesson, the infinite reasons it had not to dance. My heart to dance? Mine whose love was taken from me? I, the ugly princess who must never look for other love? Mm. I think that's very much a key to who Aurel is, is that she refuses to believe that she's lovable. Yeah, and so she just, and she talks about that, that like, only the people who are who are born beautiful have any chance of winning at this game of life. Yeah. And only the people who are born with the favour of the gods have the ability to win the favour of the gods. Yeah. And so if you're ugly and if you don't have the favour of the gods, you're just stuck forever. Like she just that like she just sees there's no chance of like breaking through any of this repetition of attempting to be good, failing, attempting to be good and failing. Yeah, it's just this like despairing pragmatism I think was a phrase you used yeah absolutely that she's determined to be practical in the most despondent way yeah and also I think going back to the devouring love part of her devouring love comes from a doubt in the love of others for her mm -hmm. like she regularly challenges Psyche of like you don't love me mm. and is testing that love because she doesn't really believe in it yeah that's so true. And I think believing in it and in yourself and in the signs that you see is such a, an important theme because I think that's a question that I get a lot from people who struggle with their faith or don't have any belief, which is this idea that like, well, if I could just, if I just seen God or if God just spoke to me or if I saw a miracle or if I got a direct answer to a prayer, I would just believe. So why wouldn't God do that for me? You yeah. Know? And I think, Till We Have Faces really pulls that out because there's a time when 
our world does pray, mm-hmm. but the signs that she get, gets as answers, mm-hmm. she doesn't accept as answers. Yeah, and I think it's so telling that, that that is so true of the way that we experience faith, that we think that like if we just had this one really obvious sign, then everything would fall into place, and then it would all be fine. But I think I go back to that quote from Flannery O'Connor where she talks about her stories, and she says that they are centred on the offer of grace usually rejected Mm. and we get that in absent in the spring as well like there's kind of two levels of the story which is what will she discover about herself and what will she do with that information once she has it yeah because it's not set in stone you don't you don't know what you're going to do with your life just because you've had a revelation and like the idea as we said with the the palace that vanishes it's like a it's like an epiphany that is really strong when you have it but is then like smoke. Yeah, and then you can choose whether to believe that epiphany and hold on to it mm-hmm. or to doubt it. Yeah. Like Oral had the choice. Like she was the only one who crossed over the river and spoken to Psyche. Yeah. She was the only one with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that belief, like the fox thinks that Psyche is mad and Oral is the one who's spoken to her. It's like, she's not mad. Yeah. <laughs> and yet she doubts her own experience of that. Yeah. And I I love what she says about when she does finally encounter the god after Psyche has uh, tried to see him. She describes seeing the god and she says, he rejected, denied, answered, and worst of all, he knew all I had thought, done, or been. A Greek verse says that even the gods cannot change the past. But is this true? He made it to be as if from the beginning I had known Psyche's lover was a god, as if all my doubtings, fears, guessings, debatings, questionings of Bardia, questionings of the fox, all the rummage and business of it had been trumped up foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. Mm. And yet, it is, in a way, dust blown in her own eyes by herself. Yeah. Like, you can see where Aurel is coming from, in that it hasn't been completely clear. Mm-hmm. But you can also see how, like you were saying, she doesn't want the answer. No. She doesn't want the answer that leaves Psyche in a palace with her god, happy on the mountain, and not with her. Yeah, absolutely. Because she even says, like, I, I didn't want her to be happy not in that way. Yeah. And there's a really interesting point in the story where she encounters a priest who then tells her that the myth that his like temple and his his faith is based on, which is the Cupid and Psyche myth, but it's the original one where there's no illusions about whether she's seen the palace or not. So she hears her own story back to her, but with the bit left out that she didn't know. And uh, she has this quote where she says, Now you who read, judge between the gods and me. They gave me nothing in the world to love but Psyche, and then took her from me. But that was not enough. Then they brought me to her at such a place and a time that it hung on my word whether she should continue in bliss or be cast out into misery. They would not tell me whether she was the bride of a god or mad or a brute's or villain's spoil. They would give me no clear sign, though I begged for it. I had to guess. And because I guessed wrong, they punished me. What's worse punished me through her and even that was not enough they have now sent out a lying story in which i was given no riddle to guess but knew and saw that she was the god's bride and of my own will destroyed her and that for jealousy it's such a heartbreaking story yeah definitely and i think it's a really interesting portrayal of the gods Mm -hmm. and while they are pre-christian gods they're not 
direct representations of a Christian God, there is that sense of how we can misunderstand mm. God and turn to that same, like, you left me guessing and you, like, that accusation against God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rather than seeing the fault in ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. That sense of accusation is so strong in the book. And the answer she kind of gets, and it, there's, there's a sense that this is in, absent in the spring as well, is like, what do you do when you feel like the answer is silence? Mm. Um, and we've just finished reading another C.S. Lewis book, A Grief Observed, and he talks a lot about this, this like flinging and, and throwing yourself at the closed door and this what what happens when your answer is silence or like with Joan when she's out in the desert and the silence in her case like the silence sort of accuses her yeah and then she kind of comes to a place of real prayer I love when it, like there's a, a part where she sees and she's kind of actually driven towards God and towards prayer and it's such a powerful thing and she talks about well, Christ was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. No, no, no one could ever bear that. And I think it really put, for me, in perspective, the trial that is Christ's time in the desert, that it's not just like a sort of physical feat of like, oh, well, how could he have survived without food or shelter? But actually that absence of presence with anyone that leaves you with only your memories. And it leaves you only with who you are. Yeah, there's a quote from the very start of Till We Have Faces, which says, memory once waked will run tyrant. And that is really such a powerful theme in these novels. Absolutely. And so you kind of have to come to a place where you can be settled with your own memory. And I think that's maybe where we come to like some of the, the Catholic perspective that we would have in the place of confession and regular community prayer and all of this. Yeah, I was thinking about both of these novels and how the Catholic practice of confession is the prescribed cure. That for Joan, that time set aside to examine your life and see where you have done wrong and repent of it. Mm -hmm. And then for Aurel, to truly repent of what you have done and be forgiven for it. And believe in that forgiveness. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that if they had confession, everything would magically be better. Mm -hmm. um, Joan could still build up all the illusions about herself. Oral could still hold on to that grudge and that grievance. Yeah. But that the prescribed cure is there and it's up to us whether we take it or not. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that, like we said, especially for Joan, her faults are so mundane and and Orwell says this as well she tries to put her soul at rights before the gods and she says like I couldn't get half an hour without falling into some old rage and like don't we all know that feeling <laughs> but like Joan is so blinded by very very trivial things and it really reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Flannery O'Connor it's in her letters and it's just one of the quotes that have really stuck with me and she says I am not a mystic and I do not lead a holy life. Not that I can claim any interesting or pleasurable sins, my sense of the devil is strong, but I know all about the garden variety, pride, gluttony, envy and sloth. And what is more to the point, my virtues are as timid as my vices. I think sin occasionally brings one closer to God but not habitual sin, and not this petty kind that blocks out every small good. A working knowledge of the devil can be very well had from resisting him. I love that last line. It's so good, but it's so true that, like, 
especially, I think actually in both of them, but especially in Absent in the Spring, there's this real timidity about the idea of what you could consider a good life. Definitely. You know, that she, Joan is so afraid of anything that breaks the mold, that sets her apart from anyone else. And her husband, Rodney, has a great quote where he said, he was sick and tired of a prudent, careful world that counts the cost of everything before doing it and never took a risk. Absolutely. I think also because Joan's been living in that wrapped up world, she doesn't have pity for anyone else who's fallen from it oh she'll say that she does mm. but she'll only like sympathize they'll go oh they've had a very sad life and like mm-hmm. in a really condescending manner look down on their life choices yeah. with no compassion or understanding whereas her husband when he, he's talking about her husband being a slister and says that it it only seemed to deepen one's pity for the whole human race having seen the seamier side of human relationships and I think it's that pity that's really missing mm-hmm. from Joan. That she has so isolated herself that she can no longer see their virtues. She can't see yeah. the good in them. Absolutely. In fact, he ends that quote by saying, that is perhaps the only compensation there is, the widening of one's sympathies. But you know, she doesn't even hear that because the only thing that she's focused on at that moment is not thinking about the fact that he just said the only compensation there is. Mm-hmm. It, it says that in the book where she's just like, oh, I, I didn't want to think about what he meant by that, you know? And she just misses the chance to either see the good or even do good. Like you get to a point where you realise that even when she has some semblance of like trying to care for people... Like she even, just goes and messes it up, like and turns their lives upside down. Yeah, and it just sours everything. Yeah, and I think in Till We Have Faces, there's a great image where it talks about her love having like wrapped itself around something and strangled it so that it withers. The, the, the thing, it's the object itself withers. And so then it's just wrapped around nothing, you know? Yeah, definitely. And again, I'll just come back to it just because I think it's so important that we really understand that our lives wouldn't be fixed necessarily. The grace of an epiphany is an incredible grace. And that it's a, it is a beautiful thing to even read. Like that moment of clarity where you see yourself as you truly are is such a fascinating moment and a gift from God. The epiphanies offer you something, but it doesn't fix everything. You then have to go and do the work of your life. Yeah, like Oral, after that encounter with the god, mm. then has to decide what she does yeah. with that truth. And I think just while we're talking about Oral, one of the really interesting quotes from The Four Loves, going back to that idea of a jealous love, is he's talking about the gift love of family love, the, the giving of oneself. Thus, the heavy task is laid upon gift love. It must work towards its own abdication. We must aim at making ourselves superfluous. But the instinct, simply in its own nature, has no power to fulfil this law. The instinct desires the good of its object, but not simply. Only the good it itself can give. A much higher love. A love which desires the good of the object as such, from whatever the source the good comes from, must step in. Where it does not, a ravenous need to be needed will keep gratifying itself, either by keeping its object needy of it, or by inventing for them imaginary needs. It will do all this the more ruthlessly because it thinks that it is gift love. 
and therefore regards itself as unselfish. Mm. I think that that term unselfish is so key to both of those books that they really use their idea of love and the fact that they supposedly love this person Mm -hmm. in a really twisted way that ruins everything. Yeah, and I think to me what that really tells me is how it is not easy to live a virtuous life. You know, we yeah. we are so frequently told, like, I don't hurt anyone, I live a good life, I love my family and friends. And, you know, you could react to that by saying, like, is that really heroic virtue? And, like, probably the answer is no. But even within that, even within the sphere of loving your family and friends, going and doing your job, you know, having a modicum of success, not being too ambitious, just trying to fit in or whatever, like, within that can be such a distortion of what the virtues of those things are supposed to be. Absolutely. That even within what looks like a really safe life, you can totally miss the mark. Yeah, and in some ways it's all the more dangerous because you don't know that you've missed it. Yeah, and I think that's what the Flannery O'Connor quote kind of points to, which is that idea that if you were doing some sort of extravagant sinning, maybe there's a point where you hit rock bottom and your life is put in perspective for you. But if you have a very safe life with your garden variety sins, there's a good chance you won't find yourself stranded at a railway track and have to reflect on your life. You could easily go your whole life without doing that. Yeah, and I think that's where we just have to come back to our faith and relying on grace Mm -hmm. to make up for what we lack because I think we could become like overly scrupulous about that and you Mm -hmm. can challenge your motives of like oh did I really do that out of love or was it because I needed this but once we just keep coming back to Christ Mm -hmm. and keep coming back to that higher love which is the love of God which all our other loves are supposed to fall under yeah only then can we really live lives of happiness? Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember this at the time for us, like we said, we're still in lockdown, that Phoebe and I are lucky that we live together. We can at least regularly pray together. But Joan says like, oh, well, I haven't been to church for ages, but you know, one does believe. And I think the simple act of repetition, the simple act of receiving the sacraments regularly does help you to refocus your mind. And it doesn't mean that you escape habitual sin, but it does remind you that you are habitually sinning. Yeah. It's the building up the habits of virtue mm-hmm. to try and counteract the habits of sin that we have. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> so I think that's we've we've been battling all of this up for so long and batting it back and forth. So I hope this has been an interesting discussion to listen to. Like we said, we know it's a lot of quotes. We know it's a lot of information that probably you haven't come across in terms of the stories before. But we hope you go and read both these books. We would love you to go and read these books. I will have the links to both of them in the description but if you go and read absent in the spring in particular i want to know because i just want to see how far this book takes off <laughs> i want to know who reads till we have faces this is true but i, I love just, that book i i just feel like absent in the spring has been the one that i've been pressing into people's hands being like you have to read this right now <laughs> <laughs> i know so i must say for people who quote c.s lewis a lot it's hilarious that the first time we do a c.s lewis book we had to tag team it with something else 
I know, we will do a full... I think the problem is C.S. Lewis is so good at referencing in relation to other things, but we will have a dedicated C.S. Lewis episode at some point. At some point. At some point. (laughs) But other than that, uh, we only have our final question to ask each other. Phoebe, what have you been enjoying at the moment? So I've been listening to a podcast called Pints with Jack, Mm -hmm. and they have a full season on Till We Have Faces, where they go through the book like two chapters at a time and have like an hour long discussion on it and it's been great and you can definitely get that level of detail into that book there absolutely is, it is so dense i've listened to some of it and i really enjoyed it as well yeah it's great for what i've been enjoying i'm going to say something that in fact we have both been enjoying which is that yesterday you bagsteed <laughs> i bagsied um <laughs> Yesterday we set aside some of the few sunlight hours that we have during the day in Ireland to watch a streaming from the Met Opera of the... uh, It's an opera by Poulenc called Dialogue des Carmelites, which is also a a novel. It's based on a novel by Georges Bernanos. And it is about the group of nuns who were executed just towards the end of the Reign of Terror. And so the... The opera is telling the story of specifically one nun, Sister Blanche of the Agony of Christ. It was very moving. It was very beautiful. It's something I'd love to get into in a little bit more detail. So perhaps maybe there will be an episode on that at some point. And we'll have to say thank you to Father Connor, who organised like a Zoom call where we all watched it together. Yeah, definitely. When when it comes to operas, I do enjoy them, but I kind of do need someone to force me to say, sit here and experience it and don't move. So it was good to have... like. Like a Zoom call on it, just so that you you didn't wander off and start doing something else. Um, but no, to be honest, it did actually really grip me kind of from the start. I thought it was really fascinating and beautiful. So I would it was re- excellent, even from someone who doesn't watch a lot of opera. It was great. Um, it was sadly only on the Met Opera website for twenty four hours, but I don't know. Maybe they loop back around. Maybe keep an eye out for it. It was it was very excellent. So um, I was I enjoyed that very much. And other than that, our final roundup is to say, I said it in the last couple of episodes, but I'll just keep saying it for a little while longer. There is a form now on my website, uh, www.rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. And you can fill in your name and email address and I'll send you out an email whenever there's a new episode of the podcast. And hopefully with other little tidbits and helpful information about upcoming episodes or other kind of bits and pieces um so if you just want a little bit of extra information about the podcast do sign up it is free (laughs) um and like i said like i always say reach out to us online it's great to chat to everyone and thank you to everyone who has reached out and given reviews and uh said nice things about the podcast so i guess it's time to sign off so we'll say goodbye goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.